Yeah, and they also have the same thing in, um, what's the React one everybody uses? I haven't written. Puppeteer. No, no, no. The Jest. Other, Jest. Jest has test coverage too. I think it might tie into Instable, Istanbul as well. Wow. I'm thinking of Instagram for some reason. Instagram coverage. Tell me about these laptops. What if I needed a laptop? Oh, great. I'm so glad you asked. Tell me about, let me, let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. What are your three main things that you're looking for out of a laptop, out of your next laptop? Because you are a laptop list right now. I have no laptop, yeah. You have no laptop. I have I'm, an iPad. It's close. I'm loaning you a laptop. We've gone over that. It's not close. It's close. I'm it's pretty loaning right you a laptop because you need a laptop. Yeah. Uh, but it's not the newest or the freshest. And you are f- starting to think about your next laptop. What, yeah, I don't what, want to be laptop list again. What are your what what are your demands? What are your must haves of your laptop? I if, want, you to, if you have to restrict to three things, like these are the three things I must have in my next laptop. Well, I'll group two of them together. I want it to be an i7 and I want it to have 32, 32 gigs of RAM. So it's sufficiently fast would be the okay. first requirement. About the 32 gigs of RAM. Mm-hmm. Do you need it to have 32 gigs of RAM out of the box? No, it just needs to be able to have 32 gigs of RAM. At some point, in some, some form point, or fashion. In some form of future, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Next. Hard drive has to be replaceable, which I think kind of falls in the same world. Replaceability. Upgradeability. Upgradeability. Like I want to be able to buy service. I don't want to pay the ridiculous prices for an in, in extra large hard drive. I want to get whatever hard drive it comes with. And, but I want to, the thing is, the things you can't replace on a laptop are the i7. So it has to come with an i7. And the screen. And the screen, because you can't replace the screen. Yeah. Um, and the keyboard, usually. I don't really care about the keyboard because I've dealt with Macs. Like I, I, I usually <laughs> plug it into stuff, anyways. So I'm not too worried about that, but I'm pretty sure nothing is going to have as horrible of a keyboard as the Mac. So okay. I don't think I have a problem. So you there. basically excluded a MacBook Pro. Unless the 16 inch MacBook Pro is amazing, but I doubt it's going to be. I doubt it's going to be. I mean, it, you would need it to have upgradable parts, and it's not. There's no way that's going to happen. No, upgrade. it's not. Gonna it doesn't matter it. any of the other stuff. It doesn't matter because it's not going to have upgradable parts. No, so probably not. You pretty much excluded the the MacBook Pro. Are you coming to the dark side? Are you coming to the Linux Windows side? Not Windows. The laptop would probably exclusively have. I don't think I would dual boot it, but maybe I would. If it was like one of the Max Q RTX laptops, then I might dual boot it. Um, Would you want to play Destiny on a laptop? I was traveling and I had nothing to do. Sure. Maybe it would be nice to be able to log on and do Do some... Do you have any other games that you play that are maybe less demanding? No. Not really, no. Overwatch? Um, I mean, if I was... Like, if I was traveling for like a long... Like on a... Let's say I'm traveling not for fun and I'm on a business trip and I want to have something to do at night when I'm not working... It would be nice to be able to play something. And Overwatch could be, it doesn't have to be Destiny. It could be Overwatch. Are you bringing a mouse? I mean, yeah, you can't, you can't play Overwatch okay. on a touchpad. You try? No, there's no trying. Challenge you can't do that. accepted. No, no you won't be able to do it. I mean, you probably could do it. I'm sure it's able to do it, but I wouldn't do it. It seems like it wouldn't work, would not work that well. I have, my, I have my Logitech mouse that I bought for work that's just chilling. So I have that nice mouse I could that's take cool. with me. Um, 
So, so wait, we have so hardware. So you've talked mostly about like the actual hardware of the machine that you would want. What are some of the like non-hardware things that you were looking for? Like maybe something I mean, somebody wouldn't think of. The only thing, the only other thing, if assuming that it was an i7 or whatever equivalent it is in the future, or one of those new AMD. Oh yeah, we get the the newly announced ones from CopyText. Yeah, Ooh. one of those maybe. I don't it doesn't even matter, but some kind of like at least six core processor, thirty two gigs of RAM, upgradable hard drive, upgradable RAM to a point. It doesn't have to have like an unlimited amount of RAM, just enough to, at least thirty two. Um, and I I think it would be nice to have a graphics card like a maybe a, a RTX twenty seventy Max Q would be really Ooh. nice because then you could. I don't know, those kind of like increase the size of them a lot. But yeah. if it was like... What if you had something more laptop form factor friendly, like a like a 1060 or like a 1650 Ti or something like that? The 1650 maybe, but the 2070 Max-Qs are the same thing as the as the old 1060s. They're like the same design. They're The, the minute you make it a gaming computer, it's going to be bigger. Yeah, it's going to be gigantic. And heavier and, and bigger like, fans and crazier cooling. Just gross. Not yeah, what you so want. I don't know if I want that. I just it would be nice, like if like a MacBook, if it had some kind of accelerated GPU, but it doesn't have to be gaming capable, and that's mainly just for like running TensorFlow or something on a GPU. I am so glad you just said that. Yeah. So I these things that you're mentioning bring a couple of models to mind. Uh, the default ones I always go to for non MacBook Pro professional level laptops are the Dell XPS 15 and as of late, the Lenovo X1 Extreme. Those are the two main ones that traditionally have been very Linux friendly, which is not something that you're looking for. Yeah, uh, but also kind of tick all the boxes, right? In terms of upgradability, we have the RAM and the hard drives. Where is the, do they have the new X1 Extreme listed or is it only? I don't know if they do. It has been announced that there is a new, I think the second generation of the X1 Extreme. Uh, the announced specs, the biggest things are the new panel is going to be a 4K, 4K OLED, 4K, 4K OLED panel. And they are going to include the new 1650 GPU. This is to go along with a machine that is already kind of your classic ThinkPad form factor uh, that also has upgradable RAM, upgradable hard drive. I believe you can also service a wireless card and the battery, which is a big deal because a lot of times over time, batteries will like, deform and they'll like inflate and stuff and they'll like yeah. try to pop out of your case and stuff. And so popping those out and putting a new one in is a huge deal. Right. I've done that with this this laptop that we're recording on right now. I've replaced pretty much everything I can replace on it. And it's been going, it's been doing well for us. Apparently you have to pay, I'm looking at their website, you have to pay $2,000 to be able to get an i7. This I think this is why I didn't, there was a good sale on these X1 Extremes a while ago and I didn't get it. Then, because of this reason, you can't get a 4K screen unless you go up to $2,000. Even the $1,999 one has a FHD screen. Interesting. And then you get 16 gigs of RAM, 512 solid state, GTX 1050 Ti, I think. I don't know. It's cut off. Their website really is bad. Yeah, that, Lenovo's website is, is pretty hard to navigate. This is why I didn't like... They were having a sale for like $999 on this one time, but it, it was like... That's probably the base model. It was the base model, but it was, for some reason, it had an i7, I think. I don't think it was this mm. i5 
where you could customize the base one to add an i7. It was something like that, and it was like $1,200. You absolutely have to have 4K. I don't really use the screen. Yeah, so you can upgrade. That's it. You could upgrade it to, for $150 more, you can get the base model with an i7 6-core 8750H, which is the same thing as my... That actually top. might be the one that you want, because if the i7 is, is the main thing and it's not replaceable, yeah. if you're okay with... But then you can't get a 1080p. Screen. Oh, you can add it. Wow, you can add the the UHD screen for four hundred and three dollars more. But then you're up to eighteen hundred and twenty eight dollars. So then you just buy the next model up. Not really, because this gives you this is two two hundred dollars cheaper than the other one. Uh, and it has an eight, it has a six core processor and it has the UHD screen, and then you just get it with the base RAM because it's upgradable. And it has the 1050 Ti Max-Q, which could at least run Overwatch. You just leave the hard drive alone. Yeah, and it's $1,827. Yeah, that might be the way to go. That might be the way to go. I think they're getting the up, the uh, the new i9 chips as well. I'm not 100% sure. I don't know one, if I need that. I, just, I don't think you need it either. I just want it to be as powerful as my desktop. And, and the i7 8758, whatever, at least at burst speed is supposedly as fast as my desktop. I don't know if that's true always, but... Yeah, that's the tricky thing with laptops is that trying to put that level of powerful hardware in a laptop form factor is extremely difficult. I just kind of like this idea of having a Max-Q graphics card just in case with the UHD screen uh, and 32 gigs of RAM and a bigger hard drive. Yeah, that seems like it would be an option that would work for you. The other one that comes to mind that was also announced at Copytex this year, which is I think just... It might have been just the past weekend. Uh, so it was. Razer makes a laptop called the Blade. Yeah, I've seen the Blade. Blade Pro. They announced a new edition of the Blade this year at Computex. I believe it's called the Blade Pro. Let me look. I got to look this up. Hold on. Razer Computex. 240 hertz, full HD, OLED. New Razer 15 Blade displays. The only thing about the Blade is that I don't... So the new ones, the... Yeah, they have the advanced model, the Mercury White. Razer Blade Studio Edition. Oh, I heard about this. Razer Blade Studio Edition. One is white like a MacBook or, or aluminum colored MacBook. 120 hertz 4K display. Quadro RTX card. What is this? The, the Blade... Blade Studio. Studio. So the bigger one which is probably the one you want, is the Blade Pro Studio. That's going to be the, the 15 and a half inch or 17 inch, I think. It might be 17 inch. They I have a 14 and be, a 17 inch. I don't need to be that big. I, I don't know. I the, just, the form factor on the, the razors is actually quite good. The cases and everything is actually quite nice. This makes it... They're almost like yelling from... They're almost yelling at the top of their lungs. We are better than MacBooks. Like If you look at a picture of this thing... It looks like a MacBook, but it's got better hardware inside and a functioning keyboard and a better screen. Like everything about this machine is better. So I don't, I don't know. It seems like that would be something that should be on your list as well. Yeah, they have the 8750H. You can get an RTX 2060, uh, full HD, 144 hertz, which is, I guess, nice. If you're going to game on it, having, I love having 144 hertz. It's insane. But I don't know if these are upgradable. Oh, that's actually a good question. I don't actually know off the top of my head. I feel like they build them similar. Well, you I know can you can open with, them up. You can get them with 
Oh, you can get the ninth gen processor with a 2080 max Q. Oh man. I don't know. 2799. A lot. It's pretty pricey. That's MacBook territory. Yeah, and I don't know. These ones are so integrated with the OS that they might not um run Linux as well. Yes, I have heard some stories that the the stealths or the sorry, the blades uh, has not been as straightforward as something like the, the the Lenovo's or the XPS's of the world. I just want something where I install it and it works. Like it, it doesn't have to be the fastest computer or the nicest looking computer. As I long think as that it works. the ThinkPads traditionally have been almost legendary for being out of box compatible hmm. with with any version of Ubuntu. I think they're like one of the only ones that was on the Ubuntu like verified list. There was another one that I was looking at. I don't remember what it was called. It was during. They were having some sales back uh, in the day. Huawei Matebook? No, I'm not going to get Huawei. <laughs> no. Are we allowed to buy those even? Could I don't you think so. You or I in the United States right now, can I we even buy can. a Huawei laptop? I think you can, but you can't if you work for the government. What, is, mean, the, what is the other brand? So there's, there's the... Huawei, Acer, Asus. No. It must have been HP. the... It must have been the Lenovo. Is there a different Lenovo that's not the X1 Extreme? It, Lenovo makes a bunch. They announced another line called the ThinkBook. ThinkBook, oh, which is like a lower, lower price. It was the X1. Class. It was the X1 Carbon. Yeah. So their two main lines are the they had the T series, which is like kind of a no. That was the T one was the one I was looking at. Yeah. There's a T series. There's the X1 series, which used to just be the X1 Carbon. Now it's X1 Carbon, X1 Extreme. X1 Carbon started off as your MacBook Air alternative. It's mm. super, super thin. Uh, really svelte, very lean, tight little package. And it's kind of basically if Lenovo was making a MacBook for Windows users, then that's what that carbon is. It's all sealed up though. You can't replace anything. It's all soldered carbon. up. Carbon. Yeah. But it's super thin, uh, full carbon fiber shell. It's very like sculpted on the bottom. So like the edges come to like a really thin edge and like it's very thin and light. That's the idea. It's a very uh, good package for like a business user who wants to be thin and light and on the move. The one that I was looking at was definitely upgradable. So it wasn't the X1 Carbon. So it's not carbon. the Carbon, no. It was that T1, the T630 something, whatever that is. The T-Series, I think they're on two, they're on probably 480 at this point. T480. Oh, it was the T590 or something? No, T480 or 490. Oh, man, this is so... Why do they not just have like good, better, best like Apple? Like, come on. What? Because none of Apple's are good, better, or best. So, mm. 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 I don't know. Yeah, this might have been it. It might have been the T490S because it's upgradable to 32 gigs of RAM. Yep. i7 processor for only 921. And the reason why I was looking at that one is because it was super cheap and it had the ability to have pretty much everything I wanted except for the graphics card. I don't think it's going to have the 4K display. It's definitely not going to have the OLED display like the Extreme is. One of them had a 1440 display, which would be fine in my mind. I don't know. This is 1440 so would actually be good. I know that the the decision between going 4K and 1080p on a laptop is always kind of a struggle for a lot of people. I used to not understand that, but like the longer that I've used this old laptop that we record on, the more that I understand it because the screen, the panel on this thing is amazing. What is that? Is this it, is 1080. Oh. But 
the panel is great. The panel quality is great. The colors are really good. It's not oversaturated. There's nothing washed out. The brightness is great. It renders everything beautifully. And I'm looking at this going, do I really need 4K at the cost of like two hours of battery runtime? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, really 4K, you, you literally can, you can barely even run the desktop at 4K off a crappy video card. It's a lot of pixels. It's a lot of pixels. So it's a decision to make. Definitely is something to think about. Greg, you'll have to keep us posted on what you end up going with once you end up buying. I'll do a review. Tell us the good and the bad and, and how your Linux journey continues to go. How's that? I'm starting to use it, but um, more, a lot more. I still don't like the key bindings. Well, you'll you'll figure that out. I don't know. Once you have a laptop, you'll just make it whatever key bindings you want. I think once I have all of my computers being the same, then I would think about it. There's also some programs that it doesn't have that I can't. Well, that's like, always do. that's always a struggle. That's that's the story to me that's interesting because as somebody who's switching, um, the process of switching over a lot of those programs can be painful at times, but it's also kind of fun to like find other ways of doing things. And sometimes you discover a better way of doing things. I mean, we're we're no. we're tinkerers and we're <laughs> we're fixers and we're always trying to improve our processes. So that part of it, I think you might enjoy more than you think. Pretty much every program that I had on my Mac, I like more than the one on the Linux oh, that isn't oh, that isn't JetBeans. That isn't JetBeans. Like that works fine. VS Code works fine. Um, I can't use Paw for, or I think you can use Postman, but Postman's all now like paid, so I don't use it for like API testing. Yeah. I don't. I I just wanted like the ability to send, command like send requests to places. I like to map all my APIs APIs out in like Paw or in Postman, but now that Postman is all product based and it's all they make you pay for like the testing abilities that I don't want, then I don't really use it. So I paid for Paw once. It was like fifty bucks, but it only works on a Mac. Mm. And then for vector graphics, or not for vectors, but for like making diagrams, I use. OmniGraffle. Which does not have Linux. There, there's got to be either an alternative or a different way of doing things for OmniGraffle. Maybe, but I mean, I like Omni. I finally got able to use OmniGraffle and it's only on, I mean, I own it. I just don't have a Mac computer. No. Well, there's, there's a good that. chance you might not have another one for a while. So, I mean, I've got to figure it out. Yeah, I guess. Got to figure that out. So, you'll let us know how that goes. Greg, yeah. we are on episode number 24. Wow. It's the 25th episode. Oh my God! We quarter, can, quarter what century. Happens, what happens when you uh, turn twenty-five? Can you rent a car? Is that the last? Is I that the think last thing? You can rent a car on your own when you're twenty-five. Yeah. With like, like without like a cosign. You without having someone else. Yeah. I always wonder why that age is higher. Because anybody who's under twenty-five crashes cars. That's why statistically. Well, why do you let anyone under twenty-five drive then? Oh, that's a good question. And that's a fantastic so question. So don't ask that aloud because then people won't get licenses until they're twenty-five. I don't know if it has to do with like your you being 25 years old because there's a lot of 25 year olds that are just as dumb as like 18 year olds. Yeah. I think it's just from 18 to 25, you gain that years experience of experience that you can then drive a car. And you're typically, maybe if you're more reckless, you've already gotten in a few accidents and then you're, you're much more. Yeah. I think the idea is too it. is that you are in a car that you're not familiar with in a city that you probably haven't been to before. Yeah. All right. So those things are a huge risk factors. So the higher age, the more experienced driver and I guess that makes sense. So public function can now terrorize your local roads <laughs> by renting a car. <laughs> yeah. Maybe possibly not having to pay liability insurance on it and causing mayhem. Who knows? Mm-hmm. 
episode 24. Greg, what are we talking about today? We are, we, I've heard of this term. I think we should discuss it. I've heard this term, continuous integration. What? Look at that. What, what so, on earth? What? That's so weird. Those sound like two words that don't go together, and yet I hear them all the time. Do you know anything about those? Can you tell us anything about? I probably do, but before we do that, we should talk about this book that I pulled out of my closet. Okay. This is going to be book club. Uh, the I don't next know, upcoming book club? Well, I don't know if I would say number two because it's a big book. So it depends on when you finish it and then I have to like refresh my brain about it. But it's called The DevOps Handbook, How to Create World-Class Agility, Reliability, and Security in Technology Organizations uh, by Gene Kim, Jez Humble, Patrick Dubois, and John Willis. And John Willis, by the way, um, we used to work for Docker. He's one of the, dude that's, one of the dudes that's on... Um, on this podcast, it wasn't Software Engineering Daily, but it was like one of the other ones. And they do it very infrequently. He's like in Atlanta, I think. And then he f- travels a lot. And then his guy that he does the podcast with, they're not very consistent, but I like their podcast a lot when it was on. I should probably Google we it. Could probably, we should probably but look I don't that want. That, that does sound amazing. Yeah, I don't want to type on the, you know, the, the touchpad. We'll, we'll look it up the here. Touchpad, All right, so the next, next edition of Book Club will be the DevOps. Well, handbook. I don't want to say the next one because there's another book that I want to look at too. So there's two book clubs that I want to do. Well, we have this one. We'll do this one next. Well, I just want to say the other one so people this can know. Cute. What's the next one? The next one I think is going to be this book called Managing the Unmanageable. Oh, I, we've I, talked about this before. It was yes. one of my picks. I have only read 3% of it per Kindle, um, but I want to read this book. And I think you should read it too. And then we should talk about it. But it's basically about understanding the different kinds of people that are developers. So just figuring out how that all developers are not the same and all of that. Yes. So I think those, if anybody's, if anybody's going to read with us, those are the two next book clubs. Yes. We'll do those eventually. We don't actually know when we'll do those episodes, but those, those are the next books. Yeah. Um, if you have a preference as to which one we do, you can get in touch with us. There are new ways to get in touch with us, Greg. I have to oh, make this yeah. announcement. Mm-hmm. While, while we're on the subject of announcement, we've got some things to talk about here. Yeah. First announcement. I got inspired this weekend. By inspired, I mean I had like an hour of downtime between things. And I have started a Discord channel for the show. What? A Discord room because I know all of our listeners are very heavy gamer people who are on Discord. I don't know. It seemed like more accessible than Slack. So I set that up this weekend. I will have a link to our room in the show notes. I'm in there. You are in there. Uh, I tested out our bot. And so it's going to notify a channel in that room when our episodes show up. So if you're the kind of person who gets all your news from discord, like you'll, you'll, you'll see when our episodes go up there, but we've got a couple other friends of the show that are in there as well. I thought it'd be a fun place to all to have all of our listeners hang out and, and chat and ask you questions and ask me questions and ask each other questions and, Tell us how great we are and worship at our feet and things like that. So we'll have a link. Uh, it's the sign-up process is usually pretty straightforward, but it can get a little mm. tricky depending on which account you're I logged into. I couldn't sign into it because every single time I clicked your magic sign-in link, it would it would like create me an unlogged-in user and say claim this, and then I would log in and he'd be like, "You already have an account." Yes, yes, you like, are actually in there. Here? There are two Grigorskis in there right now, so we're gonna have to figure that out. I think I's admin can take one of them out, but anyway, if you have any problems. Um, try like logging out and logging back in. I know that sounds. Really it took dumb, me like fourteen actually, it times. A couple of tries. You can see if you go in there, you'll see like and Gregorski landed and Gregorski's here and big Gregorski's here. It said it like four times. Yes, it did. Because I, I who programs for a living, could not even get 
yes. into it. But I think that all of our friends out there who are heavy Discord users will be able to figure that out. I so. have like 14 Discord channels yes, that I, I belong know. to. Yes, I know. So maybe not. I don't know. But mm-hmm. if you get in there, you'll have access to a very exclusive club of Public Function's biggest fans. And it'll be it'll be a fun time there. I think that'll be exciting. So we'll have a link. Should help out. That is the first of many announcements that we have. Second mm-hmm. announcement I want to make is that friend of the show, David Allen, runs a site called the Podcast Whisper. He actually runs a podcast called the Podcast Whisper. And what he does is that he reviews other people's podcasts. Mm-hmm. And he's actually been following us on Twitter since very early on. And I emailed him the other day and he was kind enough to review our show yeah. on his podcast. And he loved it. He did he make fun he of the audio it. engineering work? He did not. He said we had fantastic sound quality because he did not listen to any of our early episodes. Yeah, he didn't listen to the early ones. <laughs> he well. listened to our most recent ones after we bought a bunch of stuff to make us sound better. So uh, shout out to David Allen. His show is actually really fun. He does, uh, it's kind of a combination of like a recommendation show, but also constructive feedback to people to improve their own shows. Uh, he's really big on structure of the show, like having an intro, having your outro and yada, yada, yada. And also all the things around the show as well, having social media accounts, having a website, things like that. We mm-hmm. kind of ticked all those boxes really early on because we are developers and we do things like that. I felt like those were the, the easy things for us to do. So I was able to take care of those early on, but we kind of changed his mind on a couple of things. Usually he's very much about having a very structured introduction and having uh, a very kind of scripted, like, hi, my name is Albert Park and we are here to talk about programming. Mm-hmm. And he acknowledged that we did not do that. And he said for us, it worked. For our show, it worked. And he appreciated the rawness and the authenticity and the the realness and the passion that we bring passion. to our episodes. And so that was great. I really enjoyed listening to his review. I've listened to a couple of his other reviews of other shows and he always gives really good feedback and has fun shows on the show as well. So I will post a link to that review of our show specifically, but his podcast is definitely worth checking out. If you're looking for new podcasts, things of that nature. If you're looking for ideas, how to start your own podcast, he's worth listening to as well. So uh, shout out to David Allen. That episode dropped this past Friday. So it should be available in your podcast player of choice. Mm-hmm. Bam. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that is announcement number two. Announcement number three Oof. We have yeah. been added to the hallowed halls of the Dev.2 podcast page. So the Dev Dev.2, Dev.to is a I would call it a better medium for developers and programmers. Uh, it's a, a little bit more of a better community, better setup for blogging, writing articles, and things along those lines. It's run by a guy named Ben Halpern. He's doing a fantastic job over there. It's got a cool feel to it, kind of a little bit playful, kind of old school, but like still serious. I don't know. There's a lot of good information on there. A lot of people writing a lot of articles and they also have a page specifically for podcasts and they were kind enough to add us to their roles uh, over the weekend. And so we are on there now. I do know some people who listen to podcasts specifically from those roles and they have kind of subscriptions and things like that. So that's we're checking out. Again, we'll have a link. If you listen to podcasts there, there's some some pretty heavy duty heavy hitters on there. Like Shop Talk is on there, Syntax is on there, JavaScript Traver. Trying to think of what else. Developer T. They're all on there. Oh, I like Developer T. All, all the all the all the ones that we like to listen to are on there. So I'm very excited that we are on there now. Makes me feel really good. Makes me feel like we're kind of a little bit more legit than we used to be. 
What do you think? Yeah, I mean, you're you're doing a lot of this uh, outreach. Yes, yeah. this this outreach consists of me sending three emails of the spam. Well, like it's more week. than it's more than I did. I mean, you know, a lot of the things he talked about on the review was about the stuff that you've done to produce the show. So, props to you. I yes, don't, well, I don't really you. do anything except talk. Yes, so. and, and I, I hope that. Uh, one thing I've learned through this whole process of podcasting is that the sitting here and talking to you as much as I enjoy it is probably one of the, it's only kind of a very small piece of a very large puzzle mm-hmm. when it comes to producing these shows. So that's something that I've learned. I've had a blast doing it. I love putting together our episodes. I like editing the stuff. Sometimes it takes a lot longer. It used to take a lot longer just because our audio quality wasn't that good. And I had to do a lot more work to make it passable, but I don't know. I think it works the way it is. We just kind of go. We don't really have a whole lot of production value. That's something else that David pointed out. But he said it worked for us. And I think it works for us too. And I think we're going to keep going. I think we're going to keep doing it. Yeah. So episode, that, those are all the announcements. Back to the episode. Episode 24. It's the 25th episode. 25th episode. Of the Public Function Show. Greg, I'm a noob. I don't know anything about continuous integration. I don't even know how to spell integration, I don't think. I'm pretty sure I would mess it up if I tried right now. What what exactly do I need to know about this thing called continuous integration? Oh man. So let's see. What is what is what would be the reasoning why you would want to continuously do anything? I don't I don't really know. It seems like continuous is a bit of a misnomer. What what does continuous mean to you? Is that it means that it's just like constantly doing something, whether I'm attending to it or not. I yeah. see. I see it as the opposite of doing something manually or doing something one off by myself. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the crux of it. Like the continuous part means by nature that it's not manual. So, if you think about how people have deployed software for the past, I don't know. 20 years, 10 years, 10, let's just say 10 years, 10, 15 years, 20 years. Yeah. Since like 2000s, it was a lot of like, let's take this code that we wrote in like the early 2000s and in the dot-com boom, it's like, let's take this code that we wrote and let's somehow get it to a web server, typically with FTP or something like that, or SCP. If you're like, you know, 2000s hot, you would be like SCP in it over. Command line in it. Command line in it with like, you know, forwarded shells and all this stuff and just getting it, R-syncing it over one of those equivalents. Um, you'd be somehow automatically sending it over by a command. Then, or if you were, if you were manually doing it and you're more um, traditional or less serious uh, or less, let's say like in, in 2000, in order to be programmatically sending the code over, you were probably some big organization, with some big engineering team that could build some kind of pipeline for sending things over. I'm intentionally going back really far for a big reason. So... You would you would SCP it, rsync it, maybe FTP it. All of those, if you just ignore a key piece of it, would be manual. So whether you're literally opening an of FTP program and dragging files yourself over, drag and drop with a mouse, <laughs> drag and dropping them over, or you're say it's even a Windows server going like say it's not Linux and you're RDPing it over and you're doing RDP um, file linking so that you can basically drag things from your desktop into the other computer and then it would send it over the RDP pro- protocol over. Wait, you're putting <clears throat> the files in the computer? You can literally, yeah, with RDP, you can literally drag. I don't know when, 
RDP like allowed you to do file sync, but I think it's pretty for like a while. So the files are in the computer. Well, they got to be. Yeah. Yeah. They're inside of the computer. They go from one computer to the internet. Greg, then, do you watch movies? Yes. Yes, I know. <laughs> I, I'm, it's an obvious joke that I'm just skipping over. <laughs> but yeah, um, you basically, you somehow got the files from one place to the other. And the process by which you did that was manual. Let's just say really early on. It's one off every single time. Yeah. And then let's say, uh, I'm going to look something up really quick. Hudson was... When was Hudson created? I can't type on this computer. It's because it's not this a computer. non-computer. <laughs> when was Hudson created? Oh, man. This is so good of audio when I, like, try to type on a little tiny computer. It is a little tiny computer. Deal with it. Um, man, why is this hard? This is so hard. I just tried to type into my phone. I got Kate Hudson movies. I don't know. Okay, so Jenkins was originally developed as the Hudson Project. This is why it's key, because Hudson became Jenkins. So it was, invent- it was created in- at Sun Microsystems in 2004. It was first released in Java.net in 2005. And around 2007, Hudson became known as a better alternative to cruise control and other open source build servers. So there were build servers before. But what these build servers would do is they would essentially take Either, gosh, I mean, I'm, we're going back real far and I'm not quite sure of this lineage, so I'm just going to wing it. And if anybody says I'm wrong, just at me, it's fine. But basically, before Git was a thing, which, when do you think it was made? Like 1998. No, not like just Git, but like GitHub, because GitHub added all the... 2008. So around the same time. So basically... Hudson is a program that turned into Jenkins. It's built in Java. And what it essentially does is it is a GUI built around a server, an actual metal server or a virtual server, whatever, but an actual instance of Linux. Through Jenkins, you can do anything that a shell command can do and anything that a shell command can trigger. And any and they have these things called plugins that will essentially take little bits of units of work that you would do and it'll wrap it in a plugin and then run it within the Java context and Java can trigger shell, right? So all the way down, all it's really doing is it's running shell commands. And why does that matter? Because around 2008, when GitHub was created, they created the ability for you to have hooks on your pull requests and things like that. And I don't know when, I'd have to Google when, and I don't want to do more Googling, but I'd have to Google when the two connected. So essentially, Jenkins had the ability to pull from SVN, going back that far. Oh, man. Yeah. Pull from SVN. And you could you could click a button in the tool, in the GUI, that would pull from SVN, run whatever shell commands you wanted to on your code, and then it would do whatever you wanted to do with those artifacts by pushing them wherever you wanted them to be. So the idea of that, that concept of having something that you can just trigger a build and have it do something to get the code onto your computer is like an essentially a little bit more of a managed deployment, but it's still manual because you have to trigger it. Right, you're hitting a button. You're hitting a button. So the goal of these systems, essentially, and we're not going to get into the modern stuff because it's so much cooler now, but back then, the idea was that either you have one developer, the whole idea of SVN is distributed coding, right? Let's Going beyond Git, like back further. The whole idea of SVN is that you have a common repository on a server somewhere that keeps track of all the files. 
SVN had the ability for you to, you could not check out copies of that and then link them together. You couldn't say like, I'm committing to my local SVN and then I'm going to sync remote. It has to sync remote. The whole idea of Git was that you could sync locally, right? Which is kind of a little bit of a tangent, but it's important because it, it kind of ties into how that system, those hooks and all of that, um, I believe existed in SVN, but it basically allows you to commit code into a repository and then have the code trigger a build for you. So having the actual commit itself. The commit itself will trigger the build. Or it'll trigger anything. Trigger really anything. But the, the idea is that there's a hook inside of, let's just say in GitHub, there's a hook that allows whenever you commit code and you can set up rules in modern CI tool systems, but you can set up rules where only if I pull request on every commit, only if I pull request to a certain branch, etc., trigger this build. And the build will typically be whatever build tool you're already using plus some combination of something that sends the file somewhere. So say it's rsync. Say it's uh, you know S3 syncing things to S3 to run on an S3 website. It's some kind of thing that takes your built artifacts, whatever the bundle of your application is, and puts it somewhere. So probably let's imagine back in 2002, 2000 to 2008 or so, a lot of the applications that people were running on the internet were either flat websites in just a, in a regular Apache server or like, I don't even think Nginx existed back then. I think it did. It was close to then, but whatever. Some kind of web server, there's some flat files in there. Or PHP, there's actual code that's running. Or there's Ruby on Rails and it's running. Or there's, you know, there's some kind of like either flat system, a language-based compiled running type server type thing or there was um, Java with Tomcat. So going way back. So the idea is that something is going to take your code, it's going to bundle it, and it's going to put it somewhere. That concept of getting the code to the server is literally just deployments. That's just the concept of deploying. What is continuous integration? Continuous integration is the concept that your server is running some bit of code, some combination of code, and you're constantly sending Whenever there's a build, it's kind of injecting that build into that server, which is slightly different than continuous deployment. Oh, man. So the, the key is the words integration and deployment. Okay. Tell us. Um, so integration is that you're kind of... Actually, I don't quite know the technical difference of the two. Um, Integration does not actually imply something is being deployed every single time. It doesn't. Yeah, you could be applying artifacts to um, to like an existing web server. You could be doing that. You could be running test pipelines. So when we when we say things like build or pipeline or job, those things all kind of refer to this similar concept of when I commit code to a version control repository do a thing, right? That that trigger is not coming from me committing code and then tapping Greg on the shoulder and saying, hey, Greg, can you deploy that code I just put in? Yeah. The, the idea behind the continuous part is I'm writing code on my branch. I commit that branch or merge requests or pull request that branch to another branch because we're all using GitFlow, right? That act is what triggers all the other stuff. Yeah. Right. Rather than having a second manual step that someone has to be involved in doing, you still want those processes to be separate, but the trigger should not be something that's manually done by another person. So 
that part to me has always been the continuous part and the idea behind integration. It can be really anything. You could just say, I have this giant integration test suite to make sure whatever code that Greg writes doesn't break my whole site. So when Greg sends a pull request and it's approved, run this entire, don't do anything. Just run this entire test suite against this new code and make sure everything is working properly. Mm-hmm. Right? Continuous integration can be just that. So it's it runs your, a test and then nothing else happens. Yeah, continuous integration <clears throat> per Wikipedia is the practice of merging all developers' working copies to a shared mainline several times a day. So it's literally the act of using um, GitHub or SVN. That is continuous integration. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I didn't know that distinction. I know that there's a difference between continuous delivery and continuous deployment. Um, and the key difference there is around testing. It's okay. around whether or not... So, okay, so continuous integration is just the process of getting everything into the same mainline branch and to master and to develop whatever. But what you were just saying is that from there, there's a decision that's made by your engineering team, by your practice, by your process, by whatever, by your CD tools, whatever, to say either I just, that makes it into Jenkins, Jenkins realizes there's new code on this mainline branch, and maybe it runs some unit tests and reports back to you if they fail. That's just continuous integration plus um, some kind of pipeline of some kind. Right. So the idea between that and continuous delivery is that continuous delivery is the same thing except it ensures that the software is actually deployed to somewhere. Right. It doesn't have to be the production final master final copy. It just yeah. means that, that all of that code that you wrote is now deployed to an actual environment somewhere where it's out there on an actual environment. So it's bringing in the rest of the... Yeah, the architecture that comes along with the code, right? Because you can write as much code as you want and it can be tested as much as you want. But until it's deployed to an actual box, mm-hmm. y- you're not really fully closely replicating what the actual production setup is going to be in its entirety. And so it's another step that you have to test. So yeah. that's where that part comes from. We should have, you know, it's interesting because this book, which I'm actually looking a little bit at this and a little bit on uh, Wikipedia because like these concepts, like they are um, very similar and they're slightly different in very specific ways, right. but it's like you the terms are often used interchangeably. Not, which is not correct. Which is not correct. Like continuous integration and continuous delivery are two different things, which is why they're usually called CI slash CD when you yes. read about them. Um, but continuous deployment and continuous delivery are also two completely different things. Completely different things, and they're interchanged. So the idea with continuous deployment is that the after it's already been integrated into a branch and maybe it's been tested and run on Jenkins, you can then go into that, uh, like a different job in Jenkins, say. Like there's one that's like constantly on every merge, every every PR into master, whatever, every merge, it's running the tests and telling you if they fail. So you get annoyed by the email and it's just telling you like, hey, your tests are now failing. Someone on this branch is breaking your code. And then the whole entire team would be notified, right? That's the continuous integration portion. But continuous delivery is actually the act of triggering the build yourself, but it doesn't have to be automatic. So that's when you go into Jenkins and you say deploy. Which is what we used to do a lot on projects that we've worked on where you would, sometimes those two terms are joined together. So the continuous integration is the aspect of bringing them into a mainline branch and then maybe then your Jenkins job or your Go CD or whatever you're using would pick up that change, run your unit tests and then wait 
and it's just sitting there for you to do something. And right, it says, it'll just run the test, and then regardless of the outcome of the test, it just it doesn't do anything else. It doesn't do anything. But if you go to the server, and then at some time in the day, you know, this is when you're at, on your job, and your team's like, 5 p.m., we're going to deploy. Well, and then sometimes maybe, you know, the deployment doesn't happen at 5. It happens at 6 because somebody wasn't ready, and someone's waiting, right? Right. That's that whole workflow where, you know, you have your principal engineer, somebody is just like, waiting around for all the code to be in place and to be integrated and tested and working together to be deployed to some kind of like staging environment. And then maybe the next day, QA comes in and they test the work the developers did yesterday. Yes. That's the whole continuous deployment model. Continuous delivery is what is kind of the new hotness now um, and has been for like the past five or so, six years and like the really highly functional teams is the idea that all of that happens automatically. All of it is automated. Every Well, even, even now uh, with continuous integration, whenever there's a pull request, so it's kind of like you can, you can take continuous delivery all the way up to the edge and then just not implement it. So right. that's why the terms are sometimes interchanged incorrectly, is that part of the process of building Jenkins, let's just stick with Jenkins because I've already said it and explained it, that concept of having a... a a CI CD server running is that it just depends on the types of jobs that you've written determines what part of that chain you're integrating. So either you're doing integration, deployment, or delivery is just a, it's a slight change based on how those jobs are configured. But in reality, you probably have some kind of job that's going to trigger whenever there's typically the, the best way that you do this for smaller jobs. I don't know about like big companies, but like smaller jobs is that whenever there's a pull request against either developer master, you trigger a job. Right. So you typically don't want to have, especially if you're doing continuous delivery, unless you have like a Kubernetes and some crazy high throughput deployment system, you typically don't want every single commit. You really never would want every commit to every branch being tested. No, you'd want the the most often, and the reason why that is bad is because there's so many commits. Yeah. There's a ton of commits. It, would just, it doesn't make three any times sense. In a row. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to run maybe like an entire integration test suite against one commit. Unless right? they're really fast. Unless they're really fast, but any you large, know, non-trivial, large size app, yeah. any non-trivial size app is going to have, especially with a, like a hundred percent reliable test coverage, is going to be a that's still going to be a pretty big test. It's be, if it's any my 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 thought is that if it's any longer than a minute or two, you don't want to have it run on every commit. No, absolutely not. So if your unit tests. Um, for whatever reason, like you have permutations of data or some kind of like conditional tests or you run it through a suite or say you do actually have like integration tests where you have Puppeteer or some kind of outside-in test running things and opening up browsers. Yeah. That stuff takes forever. It takes a long time. Like even simple tests to just test a couple things and click through a couple use cases could take five minutes. Yeah. So if every single time one of your developers commits, you're triggering this job, you're going you're gonna to make it so that your CI environment is going to be backlogged with tasks. It's never going to get done. And it's going to sit there and run them one after another. And from one commit to the next, they may not be relevant because somebody committed and then they're like, oh, crap, I forgot to, all of a sudden I broke the package JSON. That job fails. And then the next job runs and it succeeds. So the one in the middle was pointless. And yeah. were two minutes apart. Yeah, I did, a the commit. Take five I did a commit and I left my semicolons out and Greg got really mad at me. So I had to do another commit to put my semicolons in and we had to run <laughs> run our entire test suite Four times in that scenario, right? Because yeah. just because of semicolons, and that that's a perfect example of that. So, to get back to your point, the re, the 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 way you do run it instead of against every single commit, you would do something that's a bit more granular, like a pull request, or yeah, you could even be another step removed and say, 
uh, you cut a specific branch for a specific release mm-hmm. and say, all right, Tuesday, 4 p.m., pencils down. Yeah. All commits that are in, everything that is merged into this release.1.0.62, final, release, final, final, final copy of the branch is going to have the entire test suite run against it at Tuesday, 4.01 p.m. Mm-hmm. before we deploy it. Yeah, That's I mean, one way to do it, right? Kind of funneling everything into one run of the test suite so you're not overdoing it. Yeah, and we're kind of getting into a little bit of like Gitflow, which is a funny, funny thing. Well, they're thing. related. <laughs> they, they are. It actually makes sense they because are. all these things are related. Gitflow is related. Unit testing, integration testing, end-to-end testing is related. Architecture of your environments is related. Mm-hmm. All the devops kind of stuff that we've talked about on the show. All that stuff is related. And this is, this is why this is such an interesting topic because it brings all of that stuff together, right? If you've got junior front-end developer over here who all they're doing is writing CSS and she commits that code up to your branch. Then you've also got Greg Parsons, senior super software engineer person who's also setting up all these things. And this is the kind of the one thing where their expertises are going to touch. And so it's, it's something that kind of involves your entire team. Yeah, yeah. But that's why like the the continuous integration portion of it, like there in each of these aspects, there's like an entire discipline that you can talk about. So just in continuous integration, you could, let's just say you're on SVN, you could be dealing with your branching structures and you can say, you know, whenever you commit to SVN, you also need to, what was the command? I don't even remember anymore. You You would sync it to another trunk, right? And you would say like, you would cut a tag of the trunk, I believe, or you would cut a... A, a portion of the trunk and you would say, you know, this is release candidate 57.2, whatever. And in that one, you would keep syncing your changes from the mainline branch to it. And I don't remember the terms in SVN because it was years ago that I used it, but you would basically sync it into the release branch. And then in Jenkins, you could say, you know, wildcard, uh, run this job on any commit to SVN that is on a branch where it's release slash star. So any release branch would be run through the suite of tests. Right. In Git, you typically, if you're using like the the simplest case of Git or GitHub, you would have one master branch and you would just commit code to it, which is not a very good idea. No, don't do that. Don't do that. It's not a very good idea. So the minute that I set up a project, typically, I will turn off the ability for any developer, often including administrators. Including, yes. No one should be committing directly to master. Sometimes it's a problem because like, you sometimes, if you're the person who I, I always called the constant gardener at work, that person who's like doing all the the integration and the watching of the branches, like there are times when you want to be able to, as the person who really knows what they're doing, commit to master. But even then, I would say you probably you don't want You probably wanna, shouldn't do a PR. You probably don't want to, but I, I... Even for the semicolons, Greg, I know how much you really are a stickler <sighs> about those semicolons. Well, and there's, those another way, there's another way to fix that. And that kind of gets into... Um, so some of the other cool things that Git has is Git has the ability to do post-commit hooks where yes. you can set up on, not on the person's actual computer's Git config, but the project's Git config. Yes. You can actually allow pre-commit hooks to run certain things, like maybe it runs uh, prettier before it yes. commits. The problem with that, though, is that when you commit, it's going to block, it's going to run prettier, it's going to modify the files, and it's going to commit the non-changed the unmodified files, files but and the, but then you're going to have more changes but that's actually okay because at least it gets done at least it gets done and then you also see that the kind of cosmetic changes mm-hmm. of prettier is coming through as a separate commit yeah right that's true. you and I have both been on projects where a commit will come through and 
the lack of the formatting that Prettier gives you, like that you know, someone left out a comma or something like that, ends up mm-hmm. breaking the thing, and it's impossible to find because it's buried in another commit. Yeah. Right? So having those kind of cosmetic things as a separate commit is one way to do it. The other way to do it also is that there's a package called Husky, which allows you to configure pre-commit hooks locally. Mm-hmm. So from the local side. So if you do git push origin release branch or whatever, it'll run the commit hooks there rather than being forced to from the GitHub side. Hmm. And so so it'll either pass or it'll, it'll be go, no go at that point. Yeah. So if you have something in there like pretty or find something that's wrong, then it'll just no go your commit and you have to fix it yeah. and then do the commit. So that's also another way to do it. Um, but these are all kind of strategies to kind of keep everybody in line. Yeah. Uh, nice, nice guardrails again, to keep our continuous pipeline going the way that we like. Yeah. So when you deal with um, the Git flow, the typical Git flow is that you would enable a branch called develop. So there's actually a thing called Git flow, which I don't really recommend. That's the whole... Really? Well, not... That's new? No, there's Git flow, which is the thing that you... You actually can use commands to manage the branches. So you'll say like um, git flow create me a feature branch, and it'll be like feature. What's the feature name? And oh, there's like feature. a like a there's package. Like an actual called. package that oh. I don't really love, and I also don't really like the. I think that the git flow concept of having release slash whatever it works for some teams, but a lot of the projects that I've worked on is just a little bit too excessive. So there's another thing called GitHub flow. And that's the typical one where you would have a develop branch and you have a master branch. And in order to commit things to develop, you have to PR it. And in order to take develop to master, you have to PR from develop to master. That's what's called GitHub flow. Oh, really? Okay. So there's a concept of Git flow and then there's GitHub flow. So the GitHub flow is simpler. It's more straightforward. It's more straightforward for smaller projects. And then Git flow is, I think, a little more manageable for really, really big projects. But I, I just have found that um, I can't remember specifically why, but I just whenever I used it, it would it would get too complicated. You kind of need with CI. Yeah, you kind of have to have a need for the granularity of mm-hmm. the Git flow process in order to make it make use of it effectively, right? If you don't actually need, or if you're not running separate pipelines between those steps of like commits to the release branch versus commits from the release branch to say a develop branch and then develop branch to master. If you don't have pipelines that logically fall into those little steps and there's no point in having mm-hmm. that extra step of the release branch, but the GitHub flow that you mentioned sounds really interesting because a lot of times if you're just deploying from develop and you just have your one suite of tests, your, that's like, yeah, you have your one suite of tests and you have one staging server. Yeah. And that's and it. And you're always deploying develop to staging and you're always, it, it that's models, all you really need. well, it models itself better for a lot of small projects where you have, Everybody who's local is working on their local branches. They can do whatever they need to. And then when they commit it to develop, this is kind of where GitHub flow sometimes falls down, is that if it's only going to staging, you can't expect that like when a, when a developer, if you don't have actual PRs into develop, which is more of a GitHub thing, a GitHub flow thing, um, you end up, you don't really, but you end up with like the situation where, and the only way that you can get code to staging is through develop. So right. people will commit their end of date, like a producer or somebody's like, I want to see your changes tomorrow morning. It doesn't matter if they're finished. I want to see them on the server because I need to look at them. That's the only way they can look at them. Right. Um, you end up having the situation where you have to 
You have to push or commit your code into develop just to get it into the pipeline, but then it might conflict with developer B's code. And yeah, granted, if it's not 5 p.m., someone's going, you know, you're going to sit down and you're going to figure out the conflicts and you're going to get it in there, right? But the problem is, is that the only way for someone to preview the code, like a producer or quality assurance or anybody, it has to be in development and it has to be deployed to staging. Right. And you only have one staging server with a really small project. You typically don't have a bunch of staging environments. Yeah, even if you have a team of developers, three, four, five developers, and mm-hmm. you have one project, that, that, that one staging environment becomes the bottleneck of that It point. does. So that's when things like, that's why like with continuous delivery, continuous integration, continuous deployment, all these things, architecture almost matters just as much as your integration side. So the deployment side matters just as much as the integration side because you really gain what people would say is the very fast iterative development mode if you have both sides of the coin. So most development teams will have the integration side covered. They'll know how to do, they'll have... I mean, I bashed a little bit on Gitflow. A lot of people love Gitflow. So if it works for your team, great. I've used it before. I've had it successfully work before. It just requires that, it requires someone, a deployment manager of some kind, to be watching all the branches. And it requires somehow for that flow to the release candidate branches to go to a server. Now, if that server that those release candidates are going to is your staging server, you can only look at one release candidate at a time. And if you're a really big team and you're dealing with five releases at once or you're slating five, you have one team working you know, a step ahead of everybody else on the next release, you can't preview both of their environments at the same time no, you with one server. No. Now, there's tools that make that easier, like Kubernetes, because you can create virtual instances of your application that are segmented by domain name. So then you end up creating you know, uh, staging one dot website.com. Yes. And that staging, you know, logically through a dashboard or through <laughs> manual tracking, you know, it goes back. Yes. That's either. the other thing. If you're going to do this, you could literally have infinite clouds, infinite environments. Mm-hmm. You can. Right. All of the, all of Dr. Strange's visions come true in real life. So unless you have something to keep track of all that, you, yeah, you're going to have a, well, bad that's why, time. that's why you have a deployment manager. That person theoretically should know what, release branch is on what environment. But I've worked in systems where, I mean, we worked in a system where you could have an inf- up to 999 integration or staging environments. Yes, if, we if almost got there. To. We got pretty close. We had like 20 running at once, but they well, were- Well, we, we, in terms of outstanding environments, we were up in the 700s. I, well, I, I don't know if you were in the 700s of total environments. That would have cost like a billion dollars. I think you were- you can you could have staggered Instances. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could so. you could make like a 100, a 200, 300, 400, 500, 600, and you have seven. You wouldn't have 700. But like I'm talking, you can actually have like a hundred environments running. Oh, oh yeah, like the full yeah. stack for each. I think we got up yeah, to yeah. 20 and got yelled at. Yes, because that bill goes up very. It, well, that bill yeah. curve is exponential. So that's when you start thinking about um, integra- like actual infrastructure, because that's one of the reasons why Kubernetes, which is one of my favorite things. Everybody always makes fun of me. Used to make fun of me at work because I talked about Kubernetes. You always talking about Kubernetes. Oh, which Q8s? Kubernetes. Kubernetes. The reason why it's so cool is that you only have, you only have, uh, let's just say, a number of instances running. The problem with, let's just say, like if you have, let's just say, in the simplest case, you have one server that's staging, and you wanted to run more than one instance of your app on that server. The only way you can do that is either by domain name, by having Nginx or Apache 
link to a bunch of vhosts based on domain name. And then Apache figures out, okay, this DNS record for integration one or staging one, stage two, let's just say stage, stage one, stage two, stage three, point at these folders on port 80 because Nginx is the thing that's fronting port 80, right? right? So you can do that by having Nginx kind of DNS swap all the things and then have multiple instances of the same site, but there's they're still on the same metal. They're still on the same server, which is fine typically for staging servers. Yeah. But you have to deploy a whole other instance of your app, which if it's like a basic web app, not a big deal. You just deploy those flat files there and great. If it's PHP, well, then you got to configure it more. You have to configure um, F- PHP FPM. You have to configure all these different things, reverse proxies and all these things to make it work. So it's not really something that can be automatic because you have to go into the Nginx config and say, I now have uh, you know, vhost 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Let's say you have six staging servers. You have to set up the vhost for all six of them, and then you have to go to your domain registry and register six domain names. Right? So then you can say stage one, two, three, four, five, six. It's a lot. It's a lot of work. And it's not really necessarily automatic unless you start getting into, you can do it on Amazon Web Services because you have the ability to configure Route 53 via API. So you can actually, that's what was done on that really big project. You can yeah, actually, you can tell it what, what yeah. to name your subdomain and yeah, what to point it create, at as through the process of the creation. Yeah. yeah, you can create more instances of zones on uh, Route 53 and you can say zone one, two, three, zone one through six is stage one through six. So you can do that. The point is, you can. The point I'm trying to get at is, you can always do it. You can always make it work, right? Um, but it just depends on how complex it is. So yes. depending on the teams and what they need to do, you know, some teams will uh, actually. In the case of that project that I'm referring to, there was actually um, an entire staging stack of, you know, four or four servers. I believe there was. The authoring environment, there was an integration environment or like a, um, a delivery environment, and there was an HA proxy server. Yes. There, so there was essentially, let's just say there's three servers just to front one staging stack. Well, if those are, um, you know, T2 mediums on Amazon, those are 10 bucks a month. So it's $30 a month to run one of those stacks. Yes. So and now if you have six of them, ooh. it's $90 a month, right? Ooh. How much is that? Three times three? Yeah, it's $90, 90 bucks a month yeah. just to run your staging environment. Now, imagine that your application requires more than T2 mediums, which that particular application can't run on T2 mediums. No, absolutely not. So what I'm getting at, and I don't want to go too much on a, on a tangent, but like you can, you can either choose to create a horizontally increasing amount of servers, and you can say that I have horizontal amount of stacks. So I have six stacks wide, and they all cost a certain amount of money. Or you can say that I have one sufficiently large vertically server or stack, let's just say, um, it's a little bit, um, this analogy is not really going to work out because with Kubernetes, it also is horizontal and it's vertical. It could be both. But let's just imagine that the Kubernetes is a system that's vertically getting bigger. So let's just a, say you're budget constrained. Well, either way, it's going to cost money. So let's ignore budget. But it's more of complexity. It's like the more that you pay for a bigger server vertically wise, the more it's going to cost per month. The more that you pay horizontally is typically going to be less. Because the horizontal servers cost less but it's, in aggregate. It's more complex to manage. But those. it's more complex to manage it because you need you have a dashboard. Because you have more <laughs> servers wide, right? Either way, you need a dashboard, but there's more yeah. servers wide. But let's just imagine that you're running a simple app, not that one, just a regular website. It's an e commerce site. Maybe it uses the Shopify API. So it's very lightweight running. Like it's a lightweight uh, application in, in relative terms and how much computing power it requires. You can set up one. Kubernetes server with a master and a set of worker servers where the master is, say, 
a TCU large that's like 30 bucks a month or something. And then you have like four, less, more than more than mediums. You have like, let's just say you have four T2 larges, right? So you're committing that your maximum budget for these servers is going to be $200 a month. It's a lot more than the 90 we just said, but typically um, big applications have staging and production environments that are in the tunes of thousands of dollars. Yes, a month. So a $200 a month staging environment nothing. is nothing. Um, you spend more on that in, for for chips in your office. Yeah, I mean, they. I, I read one article recently that said Netflix pays fifty million dollars a month for AWS services. Yeah, it's absurd. So we're talking I've, different scales. I've seen scales. like <laughs> medium-sized startups running in the hundreds of thousands. Yeah, so we're talking. You know, it's it's not that much <laughs> in relative terms. But the point is, you can create a Kubernetes server or Kubernetes um, system that has the master server which orchestrates everything for all the other ones, and it also holds the domain. So the, the key thing about Kubernetes is it has DNS resolving in itself, and you point your domain at the master's, um, I think it's the master's uh, router. They call it a router in Kubernetes. I haven't looked at it in a while, but it's essentially like a portion of the master that runs, essentially within Kubernetes itself, it's running a piece of router code. That essentially says you point. I give you this IP address of the router, or this domain name of the router, or this um, DNS entry locally of the router, whatever it is. And you point as an A record if it's an IP. You point your domain at that router, and then what the router will do is it can actually create wildcard. It's a wildcard subdomain, so it can create an infinite amount of servers. And then what it does is when you when you take that workload and you say I'm going to run this e-commerce application on one of these, they call them. Um, I believe they're called pods. <laughs> I don't remember the terms, but there's like a, a logical grouping of services that run on the Kubernetes cluster that's not servers, they're services. So they're like, they can be separate servers, but they're related. They're treated as one like group. Well, almost. they're not really servers. They're actually, um, there's this interesting thing and it gets a little, we could do like a whole thing about Kubernetes, but it gets into the router and the way that that thing, that it works. It allows the entire cluster to run as many isolated networks as it needs to because it's not just a router in terms of domain routing. It's actually like an isolated network. Like internal routing. Per the per pod. So each pod can run an app on port 80 and they're completely separate from another one even if they're running within the same server. Yeah, that's like a... That's the same sort of thing with like VirtualBox. Any sort of like virtualization, yeah. you kind of have to manage the mm-hmm. internal network a little bit. A little bit yeah. differently. That and makes then sense. If, and then if you expose, so the thing with VirtualBox is just a very good example is that VirtualBox, you have to link an external port to the internal port on the VirtualBox instance. So that's yes. why you'll usually say, like, let's just take Docker as an easy example. You'll say port 80 on the master on your computer is actually, it could be any port on the Docker container. So it could be like 8080. And to your computer, you'll be looking at 80, but it's actually running on 8080 within Docker. But every one of the Docker um, instances, are their own, they're their own isolated network, but you can't expose more than one Docker container on port 80 because they'll collide, right? Yeah. On the master. It's one, one port. The difference is, is that on Kubernetes, you can run as many pods, I believe they're called. I mean, someone's going to add me for saying the wrong word, but the, let's just imagine the pods, which is a grouping. It's like a Docker Compose file. If anybody who's worked in Docker Compose, that's essentially all the Kubernetes um, pods are. <laughs> I hope that's the right word. They're just a Docker Compose file. It's like you'll have Apache or Nginx and you'll have Node or something and they run together in this logical pod. But then 
the Nginx server is actually running on port 80 and the node is running on port 3000 or something. But then you can have like 15 of those on the same server and they're actually isolated and slivers of, and they all have their own, they're all listening on port 80, but it's actually the router that says, when I take this domain, I'm going to point it at that particular pod. And that's how it works. Oh, interesting. And okay. then the other thing that Kubernetes does, which is just to close it, because I don't want to talk about it forever, but the other thing that it does is it allows all of those pods to be distributed across as many computing units across your whole cluster as is needed to run the app. So you say in the pod file that um, you know this thing takes a certain amount of CPU and memory usage or network usage, and then it basically says, I can run 10 of those with how many, inst- how many computing units you've given me. And there's some translation that understands all of that. Um, but that's basically, the, the reason why I went into all of that um, is because it, that is a really uh, easy way to get, well, it's a little complicated, but it's an easier way to get as many infinite amounts of staging services you want off of one physical computer. Yes. Whether it's virtual or not. It's like slicing up your resources in a way. So if you only have one server, instead of just running one instance of your thing on it, it allows you to run multiple, many, infinite mm-hmm. Doctor Strange visions yes. of your server. Yes. And the other way that you can do this is with Docker. So I've done it a bunch of times where I've taken like, say, one DigitalOcean droplet and I've run Docker on it. And then you say, you know, you can only have within one DigitalOcean droplet, you can only have one thing listening on port 80, right? So what I'll do is I'll take like staging and production, or staging and one and two, for instance, and internally to the box, I'll put them on port 5000 and 6000, say. And then I'll have Nginx reverse proxy. What Nginx does is it takes the domain names of um, stage1.app.com and stage2.app.com and it reroutes them back to port 5,000 and 6,000 on the instance. The difference is, is that Kubernetes does that. That's what the pods do. It handles all that. The router does all that internally. Yes. So when you go to deploy the second case, which is the Docker case, you would have to go into the server and then tell Docker to build the containers, stop the containers, restart the containers, and then the whole time Nginx is 503. Mm, yep. So that gets into what you were talking about earlier with Canary deploys and Blue Green deploys. Yes. Is that when you deploy something, it leaves the old one up until the new one starts and then it transitions the old one out and then you see the new one and you never see the 503 timeouts. Yes. So Blue Green and Canary are two different ways of getting your code actually to production. But both of them essentially use copies of your production stack and it's making a decision between when to serve up the old code and when to serve up the new code. So on a blue-green deployment, which we joked about, mm. it's kind of funny how much the term blue-green deployment has governed our, our lives recently. Mm-hmm. Blue-green deployments, you have two exact copies of your production. You have a blue and a green. And Netflix is called red and, red mm-hmm. and black. Key here with blue and green is that it, it's not like a red and green where one is stop and one is go. It's both of them. Either of them can be go at either point in time. Mm-hmm. One of them, whichever one is quote unquote live, the actual live code, that can be thought of as your kind of stable. And then any new release that you're doing gets introduced to the other one, whichever one that is. So if, if blue is your live one, if blue is your stable, then you're introducing your new release into green. You can check green independently without mm-hmm. it being live to the public, making sure it works properly. And then when you're ready to go, you just switch to DNS. So mm-hmm. now you're pointing to the other one. So now they get switched. That's a that's a really 
I, I had no idea about what that whole setup was before we started working on that project together. And it's so simple, but it's, it's brilliant. It's mm-hmm. really a robust solution to a very complex problem. And so that was something that amazed me about it. Canary deployments are similar in that you have some sort of pool or some sort of, um, I've heard load balancers really is the main thing that gets used in this. But you say you have a, a set of servers that you use to serve up your, your production code. Your, your new release gets deployed to one of those. And then you have a load balancer or some other way say, okay, send 2% of our network traffic to this server that happens to have our, our our new release on it. And you kind of load test it. You make sure it stands up and works properly. Make sure all of your tests are still passing. And then say after a day or two, you're like, okay, this this looks like it's okay. Let's, let's send 10% of our traffic to it. Do another round of tests. And you can determine how many rounds of tests you want to run through here. And then eventually what happens is that that server gets an equitable portion. It essentially gets the full treatment Mm -hmm. of how much traffic it gets so those are two strategies kind of at the at the very top end of getting getting that last mile out of your release out out to public and getting it live yeah yeah and like all of these concepts are um they're the continuous like the actual continuous delivery deployment uh delivery portion of this so that whenever going back through the whole conversation when you integrate the code into the branch the trunk the trunk gets tested on CI, on some kind of like on Jenkins or on Travis or on Circle CI or on some kind of Go CD, some kind of continuous integration tool. It's going to run the unit test. It's going to figure out if it works. If it works, then it's going to promote that build automatically to the production stack using one of those strategies, either blue green or canary or something. It's just going to get it out there. Um, but the key thing about continuous delivery, just to kind of close the talk, is that you have to have unit tests. You have to you have actually, to. but the, you have to have it so that you can be confident that when the robots deploy your code, that when the robots determine and the, and the continuous delivery system determines that your code is good, that it actually is good. Yes, yes. It's not, the, the, the point of the test is not, do you have tests, is do the tests result in the things that you want them to result in, right? Do they fail in the cases that you want them to fail and do mm-hmm. they pass in the cases that you want them to pass? This is a very, very specific point because we've both worked on projects that will have some sort of test coverage, but the results of the test do not match up with the actual results that we're expecting or what we need the test to tell us. Yeah. Well, if they're not, that becomes a problem. If they're not maintained, if they're not um, finished, (laughs) they're not finished. You can have both having false negatives and false positives are both problems. Well, the thing is you can have the thing about that. I learned about testing. That's really interesting is that, even if you have full test coverage, you can have false negatives and false positives. Yes. It doesn't mean that just because you have 100% coverage and um, what is that damn tool that tells you coverage? Um, not Chakram, it's one of them. I don't know. Um, Istanbul. Istanbul. You can have like instant. I can't believe I'm remembering these words. Inst- is- Istanbul. 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 Constantinople. Yeah, and they also have the same thing in um, what's the React one everybody uses? I haven't written. Puppeteer. No, no, no. The Jest. Other, Jest. Just has test coverage too. I think it might tie into Istanbul, Istanbul as well. Wow, I'm thinking of Instagram for some reason. Instagram coverage. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hashtag title. Yeah. So you you figure out if you if, even if you have actual full code coverage, does not mean that your tests are actually working properly because humans wrote the tests, and humans can write wrong tests. Humans can make anything pass if they want to. Yes. 
regardless of it actually working. And they can make something like incorrectly say that it's correct. While, so, while true, return true, expect <laughs> true. That's a passing test. It doesn't do anything, but it's a yeah. passing test. Yeah. And you can, you can end up doing that and you know, you don't actually have any coverage. So I think the key thing to think about is that you can have the unit test coverage, but it really, it, it, the really the only way that you actually know if code works correctly is when it's delivered to production, yes. which is why Canary is actually much harder to in- implement um, because it's it's just there's just a lot more to think about when you have a pool of servers that you even get to the point where you have a pool of servers running your production stack, not like a production stack that has like 16 servers. I'm talking like a pool of production servers that are running completely isolated from each other. Yes. And they're all load balanced to look as prod. Yes. And you're managing like more than one N plus one production stacks that are all working together under DNS to be your production stack. Like that in itself is hard enough to get to. Then on top of that, you're going to pluck out one of those one of those sets of servers. You're going to isolate it somehow. Obviously, prog- like programmatically, not like manually. Yeah. You're going to isolate it off the DNS, and you're going to say this particular one is going to get the new code, and the DNS is going to say that there's a weighted average that that gets 10% of your traffic. Like even that in itself is really complicated. That's up is complex. Yes, it's the the complexity of these processes goes up. Again, not linearly, exponentially mm-hmm. with more servers, more larger apps, more services. And so the the difference between, say, a, a smaller application and a larger application is not just a multiple. It is a, a, a exponentially harder because you have multiples on multiples. Mm-hmm. It's loops on loops on loops. And so it, it is common that some of this stuff tends to get overlooked because of, of resourcing and whatnot on a lot of projects. But it's hard stuff and it's complicated and it takes up a lot of the different things that we as developers do, right? How does this code work? How does it get checked into GitHub? How does it get version controlled? How do these pull requests work? How does your testing work? How does your architecture work? How does your traffic work? How does your other testing work? It, it, it's a lot of different pieces that have to, to work together to, to work really well. But ultimately, I think the important thing to keep in mind is that the dream of continuous delivery is that I junior developer number 1064278 on this project, I'm able to commit a piece of code. I change the color in the CSS from blue to red because that's that's the code that Greg likes to write. Mm-hmm. I, I put in semicolons because Greg told me to. Mm-hmm. I make one commit. I make one PR to a branch and the entire rest of the process of that code getting to production live stack is fully automated. No one ever has to touch it. Except for that's the person, the except for the person who did the code review. That's the only. Well, let's. Well, that's yeah. the, so. That's the thing is that so. Once you code approve, once it, you code approve out. it, yeah. everything goes. Everything goes up, mm-hmm. and everything else is taken care of by itself. That's the dream. That if you can sell that and understand the implications of that, less time spent on on DevOps, less time spent on deployments, turn around, turning features around quick, more quickly, fewer errors, fewer late nights. That is the goal behind all of this and it's a very kind of holy grail type of thing where it's like you, you never quite really get I mean you do quite get there you can get there but you're talking like in teams of that have dedicated teams like everybody is responsible for testing like writing unit tests yes. and testing their code and code reviewing in a good organization everybody's responsible for code reviewing other people's code it's not just like a person who's like sitting in the 
you know, the tower in Wizard of Oz saying if code is good or not. Like everybody's responsible for code reviewing. Everybody's responsible for PRing and writing unit tests for their own code in a really well-oiled organization. But once that system has done its job, there is another team who spends their entire, some portion of their day just making that system work. Maintaining the garden. Maintaining the constant gardening. Like doing all that work. gardening. Making sure that when, and the whole idea of this, the whole real holy grail of continuous delivery is that creating instances of code, like instances of applications on staging becomes self-service. Yes. And it's not oh, self-service yes. oh, like, oh my goodness. it's not like self-service like you send me, like in, in organizations that have like a lot of red tape and they like like to control these things from happening, you know, they'll say like, you know, you send me this formal request on form 7542 signed by your, you know, uh, team management or, management or whatever. And then, you know, you get us the requisition costs from marketing budget and we'll build you a server stack. Like that's not self-service. No, that's absolutely not. Self-service is not also, I mean, it can be, but it's it's not really like anybody can go into the CI CD environment and create you a stack. That's also, it's better, but it's still not self-service. Self-service no. is like, when I say that I want to preview this code and it's deployed into develop and it has a feature branch on it, boom, it's on prod. Like, or sorry, it's on staging, ready to be tested. And then even further, like when that environment is spun up or partitioned or created on Kubernetes, which is a reason why you want to use Kubernetes because it's a lot faster to create that environment. Um, you, know, you go through the process, you create the environment, you put the code on it. Someone looks, the developer even, the person who wrote the code looks at it and says, yes, that's good. And they release that Jira ticket to QA. QA looks at it, QA approves it. And then all of a sudden, that person approving that ticket could technically through Jira even automatically trigger the PR accept. Like it could say like, QA has approved this, immediately add a comment and an approval to the the GitHub issue. Yeah, you could like add a bot. You could have an add bot. Yeah. Like if you add somebody in Jira, it's basically saying, Q, it's like a QA stamp of approval and it sends through an automated pipeline just off of that. So yeah. c- continuous delivery is not just about code, essentially. It's about thinking about how to automate certain things, right? If If, if you need something to happen... Think about the steps that it takes to get there to happen and really think about what what is the thing that should trigger all those steps. And if that trigger should be a PR, then everything after the PR between the PR and the actual production code should be automated. Mm-hmm. And that's that's how you want to think about these systems. So a lot, a lot of stuff to think about. Hopefully our listeners get their get their creative juices flowing, get get ways to to improve their processes based on that. Yeah. I find it fascinating. Like just to get off like the code of it, like just the the process and the thinking and the amount of work that goes into it and just getting to that kind of system is quite fascinating. Like that you can actually build a system that's resilient, that is actually self-service, that makes it so that when QA and marketing teams and um, stakeholders of any kind, whatever department they're from, can just create their own instances of things and can... Ideally, if it's on Kubernetes, it's within um, the cost structure that you've already defined and you yes. slowly expand that as needed. But it's not like it costs you extra. Because what you don't want is every single time someone self-services themselves an environment, it costs you money. What you want is it so that it's a fixed, it's a, it's somewhat of it's a, a fixed. It's a known cost. It's a known cost that maybe increases per, like if you have a project coming, you know you need to add another four servers to your Kubernetes stack and you just yes. attach them and they're yes. ready to go. The bean counters love known costs because they can plan for it. They can plan for it. Like that, 
that kind of idea is pretty fascinating because it's eventually you can get to the point where you know quarter by quarter, depending on your workload, how much infrastructure you're going to need to run staging. Yes. And then you know based on your traffic and you know based on people using your app and how that's increasing, how much money you need to spend on production. And typically for the bean counters, they can correlate the amount of traffic that's on production to the amount of revenue they're getting. Yes. So ideally there's this give and take where, you know, if you ask Netflix why they pay $50 million a month for Amazon, they say, well, because we make more than $50 million per month on subscribers. Boom. And there's a, there's a, or a combination of subscribers and investment, whatever it is. But there's a justification where they're like, I don't care that I spend $50 million. Like it's making me uh, probably 14 times that. Yeah, they have that calculation down. I, for every dollar I spend on AWS stuff, I make $1.76.254 cents yeah. on it. So, yes, please continue spending money on Amazon. Thank you. Yeah. That's usually how that conversation goes. It's great. And the idea is that if you can actually get to the system where, uh, if you get to the holy grail of like your environment is actually created for you automatically, everybody knows in Jira, it's notified, whatever tool you're using for tracking tickets. Like whenever I, you know, if you've ever, anybody who's ever worked on a Kanban board that has the waiting for environment bucket, oh. if that bucket didn't freaking exist, how much happier would you be? People that know what I'm talking about. Wait, waiting to exhale is what it is. Yeah, hey, waiting, waiting for environment. <laughs> waiting for environment is like, okay, well, I'm waiting for Albert to do his job and deploy this. You thing. might as well call it twiddling my damn thumbs. Like mm -hmm. that's ex is essentially what it is. Because as your velocity increases and as the amount of work that you're doing increases, that bucket will just get, you take more people to manage it or it's going to get backlogged. And then people are going to say, why can't I test, you know, ticket 47 or feature 37.1 to be A or whatever it is? Oh, we're waiting. We're tooling our oh, damn we're waiting for we're waiting for an environment. How long have you been waiting? Like a week? Oh, well, they're really backed up and they just can't, they can't get it onto an environment for us to test. Like that has lost money. It's lost features. You don't know, especially there's a whole other side of this conversation, which is A-B testing, which is, um, you know, feature flagging automatically having things experimenting with your application, Ooh. deploying things to production just to see with the Canary deployments. Like, you know, when I deploy version two of this carousel, does it have more interaction? Does it increase cost? Does oh, it man. change the needle in analytics for that particular oh, environment? Man. Like that part of it is the part where you can say to marketing teams, you can say, when you give us this amount of flexibility and you give us this level of engineering excellence, we can actually say, when you come to us and you say, well, I don't really know if people like the buttons when they're blue or green. Uh, I think if they're green, you know, you always have those marketing people that come to you, the creatives that come to you and say, you know, I think if the buttons were green, it make people think about money and then they're going to want to spend more money. I, th I feel, I feel that that would work better. Yes, let me mobilize a 15-person team and a budget of several million dollars to test out this feeling. Yeah, or you can say, you know what? Let's just change some CSS. Wait, what is it really to change the button on that page to be green? It's a little bit of CSS. Yes, but the cruft of deploying it costs X amount of dollars. That's, what, costs, that's, that's where the money comes from. It costs yes. thousands of dollars to deploy that feeling to production to see if anybody likes it. Then, assuming you have metrics tracking whether or not it's actually performing better, that particular environment can actually be identified out of the, as a sliver of the entire analytics like budget. And you've got your AB right there. You got your AB right there and you say, did this one produce more traffic? With 10% of traffic, did it increase 30% more sales? And if it does... Freaking science. Pound science. You know that the green buttons are better. It's not a feeling anymore. Hashtag math. Hashtag math. And then you'll know if it's actually good. And then, you know, when you get to things that are even bigger than a green button, someone says, well, you know, I think our homepage has too many modules. And if it was down to like three modules where the modules had clear callouts and, 
you know, maybe if we just had the ability for you to buy products off the homepage. Boom. And then you want to test that and you're like, okay, well, it's in reality, your development team can probably build that new homepage for you in like a, like three days. Let's say if you already have, let's just imagine that all the technology for you to buy products is already done and they haven't engineered themselves into a situation where they're not flexible. Let's say all those things are completely different conversations, but the front end is not restricting in how, and the back ends are not restricting in like, say for instance, your homepage can't have products for whatever reason, because it's not a commerce page, you know, like all these kind of barriers. If those barriers don't exist and it takes them like two days to change the homepage to have these products or even less, a couple hours. The problem is, is that it takes more than two hours to send it through the pipeline, test it and push it out. If, especially if you're doing it the old way, because then people are going to be like, well, we can't like put that on our production server and actually see if it works because it's our only production server. If that breaks or that code doesn't work, people become afraid is what I'm getting. Yes. At. They become afraid of trying things. But if you actually do have canary deployments and you say, I want 10% of my traffic to experience this new homepage, whatever, or this new cart, if you're a commerce company, or this new button flavor for this adding to cart, call new out, legal, new, new call out, whatever. whatever it is, and you can deploy that out in in, in, in a equatable amount of time to the amount of time it took to develop it. It's just out on a staging environment and then and then QA tested to make sure, hey, that didn't completely break the page. And then it goes out to production to 10% of your traffic. And then you can actually put metrics on it and track that it's actually doing better. Against real traffic. Against, against real live, traffic. Because users. one of the things that I've heard a lot about or thought a lot about is that, you know, you can load test, you can... Um, integration test, you can run Puppeteer, you can do all kinds of things to test whether or not your code works. The only way you actually know if it works is if it goes to prod. That's the only real way you know it works. the actual way. And you can do things where you can say like, you know, my staging environment is functionally equivalent to prod. They both have like CDNs. They both have the same API layer. They both have the same thing. Like you can do all of those things. The only way to know if your product actually works is to put it on prod. What's the quickest way to put it on prod? Canary deployed to 10% of your traffic, and if it doesn't work, you can change the traffic back. All of those things are capable of being done with continuous delivery. Um, and you can actually get to a system where you can say, you know, with reasonable amount of testing and reasonable amount of, you know, running through the pipeline, I'm fairly certain that this thing is going to work when it goes to prod, and then you see if it works, and if it doesn't work, scale the traffic back to 100% on the old code, try something different. And then your marketing team actually has the ability to experiment. With real-life traffic. With real-life traffic. And you know, when you do that, you start to create this virtuous cycle where marketing can actually feel like they can test things, they get excited, they get jazzed about trying new things, and they just continuously start tweaking the product. And the product and the technology is not a impediment to marketing and excellence, to getting your actual metric, which is making money. Everything gets better. Everyone makes more money. That's the goal. Yeah, and then you can hire more engineers and to, then, to make everything better and, and they make have, even more money. They have more friends to go to lunch with. Oh yeah, yeah. And you, your developers can actually focus on the things that actually make you money, which is the product, and not only on solving merge commits and clicking damn buttons to deploy things. And you don't need someone who's a dedicated deployment manager going, "I click deploy to this environment." Like you don't have to do that if nope. it's automatic. No, nope. that job should not exist. But, you know, in order to do that, you have to have um, fully, fully baked. I don't know if like, I mean, test-driven development is kind of like a thing. You can, you can have that. <laughs> um, 
some would argue that some things are not really as easy to test or as valid to test, like a lot of front-end code. Like some people even test their CSS or they'll puppeteer screenshot diff their websites or they'll, you know, do just um, uh, markup diffs between deployments and stuff. And a lot of those things can be useful. I'm not going to say they're not, but a lot of them can create un, um, unreal or non, uh, what's it called, false positives and things being broken. Yes. So... It's all related. All it's that all, stuff. All, all related. You can't. The, the thing with this continuous uh, delivery ideal is that you can't just do like fifty percent of it and say, "Hey, we have fifty percent continuous deployment." It's like, no, you have zero percent. No, but, but the other alternative is you can. You can have fifty percent continuous deployment. You can have it to the point where someone can deploy, or you can have it at a point where one dude with his old crusty laptop has to run a shell script. You can have it halfway. Nah, but it doesn't. It, it defeats the purpose. Like, Maybe. You can, like if you have a table and the table is four legs, right? If you're mm-hmm. like, if a table with all four legs is the ideal of continuous delivery, if you have a table with three legs, how many tables do you have? How many functioning working tables <laughs> do you have? You have zero tables. Yeah, but your analogy is, you know. You have zero tables. Like all the pieces <laughs> matter. All the pieces fit. And all the pieces have to work in order for that goal to be actually achieved. So well, a, lot of, a lot of things to think about, a lot of things to keep in mind. I would just say, to close that point, like what I, was, what I meant is like, you can, you can work towards the holy grail of continuous delivery and having all of these things figured out. And you can structure your deployment. If you're a startup, you can structure your entire application, everything from the ground up to be built this way. 99% of the time, that is not the way the startup's going to be built. It's going to be built... With some dude's laptop triggering the deployment. Yeah, that's true. But and then you slowly build yourself up to having Go CD or Trap. If you want to have a self-hosted CD, you do Go CD or Jenkins. If you want to host it on something else, you use Travis. You use Circle CI, whatever it is, um, GitLab, anything. And then you start to work yourself up to the point where someone can trigger a build. Anybody on the dev team can trigger a build from the server, from the CI server. That would be like the Go CD route. And then once you have the ability for anybody to trigger, it's just a matter of changing the trigger. And the trigger becomes the PR. Yes. Versus the click. Yes. And then once you have that, then you start adding unit tests and then you say there is no trigger. There's only a blue pill. Oh, man. So you can you work your way up. You do watch movies, Greg. That's fantastic. I uh-huh. love it. it. makes me so happy. You do. You can work your way up to it. But I, I would say that um, some projects and some business models are not really conducive to the high amount of engineering that it would take to get to continuous delivery in its full regard with with um, 100% test coverage, test-driven development. Sometimes it just doesn't work. But I would say that, you know, as you get closer, when your marketing team starts thinking like, I want to be able to try things out, which, you know, good marketing teams will say that always, but like they're actually like, we have a business need to try things out. You probably should be thinking about getting towards a system where, you're automatically deploying. And ideally, you can deploy an infinite amount of staging environments for them to test things internally. And then the next step would be you have canary deployments with some set of pool of servers on prod that you can actually try things out on users. And then you do A-B testing. But by the, you're not going to be at the... I mean, you might be at the point where you're doing A-B testing, but it's very manual. You're like yeah. deploying like two versions within the same app. And it's fake users. And then it's fake users divvying based on the application determined. Well, it could be real users, but it's divvying based on like a coin flip within like the A-B testing Yeah, code. that's not that's not real. It, well, it works. You can do it. And then it re- sort like, of. Google Analytics will report back to you. Like Google has a product for A-B testing and 
basically your app will do a coin flip at start. It'll tag you and it'll say you're part of group A, you're part of group B, and it'll do all that. So like there are ways to build up to it with a single app, with a single production server, with the ability to do all these things. It's just not as robust. It's, it's not, not as, as good robust. data and it's not as like you're, you don't have the granularity of your samples. You can say, I ran this from Tuesday to Thursday. 20% load. So you like you can't really do that with, with the GA stuff. So that's no, why yeah, you'll get a fifty fifty you'll get a fifty fifty shot. And it becomes harder, yeah. It becomes harder and yeah. So I would say if you're on a team that is maybe I mean, most teams that I've seen are at the place where they're at least able to click a button and deploy. The good teams will be at a point where they can click a button and deploy. If you're already there, then you're doing okay and you should start thinking about how to go further. But if you're on a team where some some what you're like head engineer, you're like super angry, overworked engineer is the only one that can deploy, and he tells marketing four times a day that he won't deploy for them because he just doesn't want to. Like then you need to start working towards the latter. You got problems. You got some problems, and the only way you can get past that and make that engineer not angry all the time is to make that not his responsibility. But yet, don't break that engineer. Probably does care about your app, so to not break that engineer's um, like care for the app or desire to do things right, you start implementing the testing, the, the flow, the workflows, so that that person feels comfortable with code being deployed to the production site without worrying about it breaking things. And then that, and then that engineer can go home and you know hang out every once in a while. At a reasonable hour. Watch Game of Thrones. Going witness home at a reasonable the, hour, yes. Witness the horribly not oh, AB tested man. season finale of that show. So what happens when you, uh, from what I've heard, I don't know. I haven't watched any of it. I haven't watched any of the show. I don't know anything about it. But it seems like leaving uh, one Mr. George R. R. Martin out of the process has uh, come up with disastrous results. So. I've heard some people say that they were they were the two writers were trying to uh, move on. Like George R. R. Martin said that they could have they could have dragged out the last season into three seasons, but they did it less because they wanted to work on Star Wars, the TV show. Oh man, competing priorities. Who knows? Who, who knows? knows? Who knows? Who knows? Greg, do you have a pick for us this week? I did, but I forgot it after all this riveting talk. There was oh, something you told me that I should bring up, and I don't remember what it was. It went some email service you were using. Oh, was that what you want me to talk about? I mean, you can. We can have, I have two. I'll go over two if you want. Sure. Okay, so I have two. Uh, first one, I know you've been telling me to play more video games. Oh man, is it on Linux? Uh, it. Sort of. We'll get into that. That's oh, part man, of it. Don't so, do it. Don't do it. <laughs> there was this game that I used to play when I was younger called Magic the Gathering. Oh, man. It's a card a nerd. Game. Nerd. I actually played the, the card <laughs> version, the physical cards. Yeah. And uh-huh. I was so fascinated by this because it, the tangibility of having actual cards is like, there's something about it that makes it nice. So they become collector's items. Mm-hmm. They're special editions to different cards. It becomes very Well, tangible. I heard. So my knowledge of uh, Magic the Gathering is that they take the decks of cards and they make them not part of the standard deck anymore, and, you, and they become collectibles because you technically yes, yes, you yes. technically can't play with them yes, to yes. be so, like on the ML, the the National Gaming League. Yeah, Magic so the the, or the the circuits of how the tournaments work is that there'll be certain cards that are banned, certain cards that are part of the rotation, part of the or mm-hmm. taken out, or things like that. And every season they'll they'll switch those out. Anyway, that brings us to the computer games. Is that there is now. I've rediscovered my love for this game because there is a game now called Magic the Gathering Arena. Oh, man. Magic the Gathering Arena is a desktop computer version of Magic the Gathering, the card game. Yeah. 
So it is the same game. It's all the same rules, all the same functionalities of, of what, how you actually play the game, but it's entirely encompassed within a computer game. So the cards are different. The structures of how the games work are different. The rewards for playing the game are different, so on and so forth. And so I have picked this up recently. I've been playing for probably two weeks or so. Are you the yeah. world champion? No, I'm still in this kind of very early oh, kind man. of grinding out earning gold and moving up the ranks. Do you have like to, is it like stage. one of those things where like you can't be number one until you have played enough to have the right cards? Well, they're ranking. So the ranking system is similar to a game like, uh, like League of Legends or something like that, where they have the ranks. Uh, you start off in bronze and then the top rank is called mythic. Mm-hmm. And there's only one class of mythic. And then, you know where else there's mythic? Where else is mythic? Destiny. In the crucible. In the crucible. Well, I guess it's pretty common then, but uh, everyone starts out of bronze. I'm currently at gold, I believe tier two two but i'm pretty close to tier one and the next one after that is platinum and then diamond and mythic so uh they have these resets mm-hmm. it's a common thing and at the end of the reset whatever tier you're in you get certain level of prizes off of that so that's where that kind of grinding comes from you have uh every week you have the 5 10 15 wins uh and you get us a, a pack of cards at each one of those stages, five wins, you get a pack, 10 wins, you get a pack, 15 wins, you get a pack. So uh, I've been having a lot of fun doing that. It's kind of still in the early stages of the, the new player experience, uh, the NPE. So you get a couple of decks to start off with and you can play as, as many games as you want. Um, yesterday, I spent a good chunk of the day playing. I got I got the, the week start on Sunday mm-hmm. for the, the five, 10 or 15 wins. So I got all 15 wins yesterday. <laughs> I played probably... 20 maybe 22 games yesterday i got to 15 wins um, how long quickly. is each game like six they're minutes? pretty they're pretty fast so this is the other thing that i like about this game is that the, the the games tend to go pretty quickly like the turns tend to go pretty quickly some of the more complex decks where you have tons of spells and things like the turns maybe go a little bit slower and the gameplay goes a little bit slower but i mean honestly the longest game i've played so far has been maybe 15 minutes hmm. most of them you're looking at maybe five six seven minutes tops so you can play a lot of games in a very short amount of time. So I've been having a blast with that. The Linux part that you asked about, mm-hmm. it's very interesting because there's no native Linux client. But it is on this software called Lutris. Lutris. Lutris is a piece of software that what it does is that it's kind of like this repository for like all the crazy steps that you have to take to install a certain game on Linux. Is this like flat packs that and I was it, telling you about? Sort of. It, so what you do is you install Lutris on your machine. And in Lutris, you go in there, you search for a game. You say, I want to play Magic the Gathering Arena. And it brings up this game. And what you do is you just click on the installation. And Lutris, by virtue of their community and their maintainers, have assembled all the different steps that you have to take to install this game on Linux. You install Wine, install this, install that, DXBK, Vulkan, all that stuff. Put it into a one-click button, and it does it all for you. So it's like a shell script. It's sort of like a shell script. But what it does is essentially it becomes kind of like a Steam for Linux yeah. where you just find the game that you want to play and it does all the rest for you. Does it have like AAA games or just like... It has a bunch. I mean, you know, it's it's, it's an open source piece of software so whoever can maintain it. Some games, you know, don't necessarily work, right? There's a script on there for Overwatch. It works really well depending on the game. If it's a Steam game, I mean, Steam has Proton so you don't really necessarily need it for that but other games... Magic the Gathering, League of Legends, Overwatch, anything on Battle.net. All those games are on there uh, to varying degrees of success. Um, you know how I run games on my computer? On Linux? 
No, I hit, I hit the button that's the power button and I say you restart. You wait 14 years for it to restart. No, you lose NVMe. all your windows. Well, that I do. I have NVMe drives. I just say restart. And then, you know, it just, I, I really wish, I, we were talking about this last week, not on the pod, but like, I wish I could actually make hibernation work because I'm pretty sure that if I were to make like a non-encrypted hibernation volume, I could actually hibernate my Linux computer into the NVMe drive for Linux because it would take all the RAM, dump it into the hard drive. So technically this would work. Technically it would work, yeah. And then you would be able to reboot, but instead of booting into Windows and kicking off the process of pulling out a hibernation, it would go into Windows. I feel like if I spent like enough like time, I could figure this out because I don't save Windows on, on Windows. Like I don't give a crap. Like when I turn off the Windows, most of the apps that I use on Windows just turn on automatically like Discord and Battle.net and whatever and all the things that I do on Windows, they automatically open. And then uh, I don't care. But on Linux, I've been using my Linux computer a lot over the past week. And I just have like tons of tabs, editors, like all kinds of stuff open. And I, I'm beginning to really like working on it, but I hate restarting to go into Windows to play games. So I haven't played Destiny in like a week. So just play, the, just play Destiny on Linux. Boom, problem solved. No. That is one feature I actually do really like on macOS where when you restart, it'll actually bring all your Windows back. Yeah, even if they're not in memory, it just remembers, the the Windows manager remembers what Windows yeah. were open and what they were doing. That is really nice. I would like a feature. If anyone out there has a solution for that, let Greg know. Yeah, it would Definitely make my life know. a lot easier. Let me know as well. You can let you can, you can can hit us up multiple places. We'll go over that in a second. Second pick that yeah. I have. So I told you before about my keyboard setup at work where I've got the, the, the keyboard and I use the Magic Touchpad, mm -hmm. first generation Magic Touchpad. Uh, that does not have the haptic click. It has the physical click, right? Mm -hmm. I've had that thing long enough now to where it's starting to get gunked up. Mm. And starting to, uh, like it doesn't really click. It's kind of kind of funky. I've been exploring different options. I've gone a little bit retro with my decision. I purchased the Kensington Slim Blade trackball. Oh my God. You going back to like 1985? So this is actually a newer trackball. So what they did is that the Kensington is actually very well known for what's called their expert trackball, which is the one that's like this big and like has all the buttons around it. They came out actually a few years ago with one called the Slim Blade, which is kind of like this sleeker, slimmer, narrower kind of setup uh, of the same thing, but it still has that big old cue ball size trackball in the middle of it. And my idea with this is that I don't want to be, I don't want to use an actual mouse at work because I don't want to be moving my hand around. That's what that's where the ergonomics where we talked about in the ergonomics episode about moving your hand all the way around that. Oh desk. wow, this is okay. I got to It's a trackball. It's, it's an actual trackball. It's like what, a thing. It is a thing. So I I've had this for a couple of days at work. It's actually working out really well. I'm absolutely loving it. Does everybody think you're a nerd? Probably. But that's they're like okay. this dude plays Magic the Gathering and like moves this ball has around. A, has a freaking trackball. It's a trackball. Who has is a trackball? Is that Hal? Is that like Hal nine thousand? Like 19, what is he doing? Nineteen ninety eight. It's a big here. red light looking at him yeah. in the face. Well, one thing that's really nice about it is that since the buttons themselves are like actual clicky buttons, you can actually mm -hmm. rest your hand on top of the flat surface of the buttons and then use your fingers just to manipulate the ball. And then when it's time to click, you just push down instead of like. One thing I found on the touchpads is that in order to make sure you're not actually touching the touchpad, you have to like keep your hands like up here like this, kind of like you're you're curtsying a, a cup of tea when you're doing it, and that that really kind of annoyed annoyed my wrist quite a bit. So, trackball has been working really, really, really well for me. I would encourage people out there if you're having RSI type of problems, repetitive stress type of problems with your input device hand, your mouse hand, you know, think of different ways. Don't don't be afraid about the trackball. 
It's worth checking out. One thing that I don't like about it it is that it is not wireless. That is the only but thing. But it's like a flat thing that sits on the ground. It doesn't need to be wireless. Well, it the, the wire is ugly. I don't really like it. Oh, you're just... This is an ugly okay. wire. Right. This is like, I don't mind it for my keyboard because like the keyboard is necessary, but the mouse like... But I have like a... Does it have a replaceable cord? Because my keyboard, I just bought like an... It's a USB-C on my ducky and I just got like a nice cord. No, the, the cable... The, like the cord is hardwired into the mouse. I, I'm pretty sure I could get in there and maybe do something with it, but mm. I, it's just... That's the one place. So Kensington Slim Blade... That's the that's the important part. The Slim Blade. Yeah, they have the Expert, which apparently is the old one. Slim Blade has lasers. Slim Blade is much lower. It's much. It's kind of a flatter, sleek, low profile design. Yes, it's a, it's a flatter set of the Expert, the OG one. Literally, you have your hand like pointing to the sky like this, which we've that talked about. Painful. It's not good for your wrists. Don't do things like that. Slim Blade is much lower. It's much nicer. It's a good setup all the way around. So I've been enjoying that. We'll have links to all those things. In you should the just notes. like, you should now get a Dvorak keyboard. And then, no, no, no. Yes. No, no, no. And then you'll just be like the person with the Dvorak <laughs> slash. And you should get like one of the, the, the split keyboards, like the Kinesis Advantage 2 ergonomic keyboard. Oh, yeah. You should do that. You know, there are actual split keyboards, right? Where the, the boards themselves are actually two separate pieces. Yeah, I've seen those. Yes, the er custom ones. Ergo docs and like you can build custom ones, like you said. That's like. I'm not quite there in my keyboard hobby yet, but I'm getting there and I'm, I'm a little bit afraid. I'm a little bit afraid. So uh, we'll have links to all of my picks in the show notes. They have a DSA ErgoDocs keycap set. Oh, of course they do. The, the ErgoDocs uh, keycap layout is a little bit different. Mm. And so the keycaps that you need for it are a little bit different. So it, it's something... I don't know if you can buy an ErgoDocs one off the shelf with like mechanical switches. If you do, I'm pretty sure it's going to be north of $200 easily. Yeah. But you've got a cable that goes to your computer and then you've got a cable that connects Whoa, to your house. I found you. I found you. This is you. This is you in the future. What on earth? Yeah, the, key, the keys, like they're on the side of the keyboard. Yeah. Oh, so you're And I think that's a mirror so that you can see the keys. That's ridiculous. You need that. That's Safe absurd. type keyboard, black color. The two v halves, nine. the two halves of the keyboard are literally vertical. Yes. So your hands would be like you're shaking hands with people and yeah. then you're typing on the keys like that. Yes. That's that's ridiculous. I can't I can't do that's that. That's what you need. No, no you need that. that. That is not what I need. So all the links. Wow, look at this setup and look oh at the my God. Look We're at not the gonna have links to any of these. Look at the monitor. That looks absurd. That's you. That's look at all those so like crappy mean. unmatched monitors. No, this is your this is your fear. <laughs> says the guy who has all the unmatched hey, monitors. <laughs> we've talked about I'm not gonna get into it. We've talked about why my monitor doesn't match and there's uh, a reason. And uh, it works fine. I've been yeah. using Linux for a week now and it's fine. Uh, okay. If you say so. It is, it's great. Greg, this has been episode number 24. Wait, we didn't do my pick. You said you didn't have a pick. No, I did. I just didn't remember okay. it. Okay, tell us your pick. I mean, I guess I could get away with not doing it if I hadn't said anything. I mean, we've been going kind of long. Maybe we should just well, let me do, uh... do two picks next week. Okay. Okay? All right, I'll try to remember, sure. It's been episode 24. Yeah. You can find Greg online on our Discord. We'll have a link. Yeah. Or on Twitter, at Gregorski. I am at Albert Park. The show is at a public function. We post there. When the new episodes go up, you will know. You'll know there. You will also know the Discord also, so that's good. Episode 24 on the internet, publicfunction.show backslash 024. All the show notes. We're going to have a lot of show notes for this one. It's going to be a lot of stuff. We've talked about a lot of stuff. All the show notes are there. All the beautiful podcast artwork with relevant background pictures mm -hmm. will be there. Pictures of Greg's face and my face will also be there. We totally. We need some new portraits, by the way. I would like to take some new portraits. Yeah, I need new portraits in life, so I'm I'm down. We can we could totally do this. We'll we'll take a day and do that anyway. 
public function.show on the internet. Also, dev.2 backslash pod is the pod listings. You'll find us there if you like to listen to our podcast there. They have, a good, else? they have a good list. I looked. I listened to like half those podcasts. Yes, they're, they're very good podcasts. Did I leave anything else out? I don't know. I don't think we did. They're going all long. Why do you want to spend more time? Yes. Publicfunction.show backslash contact. If you want to get in touch with us, you can also email us. Hello at publicfunction.show. I run that email account personally. I will personally answer you. If you say something nice, we'll read it on air in front of everyone. And it'll be fun if you do that. So mm-hmm. check us out there. Lots of ways to get in touch. Definitely check out the Discord. That's going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited for that one. So, Greg, anything else for you? No. No. Awesome. I will see you next. Yeah. Awesome. Great. <laughs> That's an infinite loop. That is called recursion. Uh, maybe. It is called recursion because if you ever Google recursion, you know what the first thing that comes up is? You know, but see, I'm repeating what you're saying and recursion can't, it has to call itself. We are repeating ourselves. Yeah, therefore, but therefore I recursion. can't repeat you. That's not recursion. You have to repeat yourself. Our collective loop is repeating itself. Therefore, it's... Recursion. But we would have to be the same program. It's nested recursion. We'd have to be the same method. We're not. But if you Google recursion, you know how when you misspell something, it says, did you mean this? Mm-hmm. When you Google the word recursion, yeah, correctly spelled, it says, do you, did you mean recursion? Mm-hmm. Which is a recursion joke. I know. It's really funny. Yeah, Google's funny. Programmers are funny. We have jokes. We have yeah. All kinds of jokes. Especially the CSS ones. The CSS ones are, are fun. Oh, man. Class Titanic, float none. It, it did float at one point in time. You can't change CSS properties after they're compiled. Yeah, you can. It's called jQuery. <laughs> mm, did they have jQuery in 1912? 1918? Uh, when did it sink? 1912? It was around that time. 1912, I think. Yeah, it was around that time. It was a, it was a technical, logical marvel. Mm-hmm. It was the equivalent of like Elon Musk and the spaceships back then because it was so enormous and the engines were so big. I don't think they had ever had a ship with that many of those engines on it. It was like had three. It had four. Or had four. Queen Mary has three. Four the Titanic engines. has four. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. The same ship, but the Titanic has four steam engines and the Queen Mary had, well, it had three stacks, yeah. I believe. And then the Titanic had four. But they were the same design. Titanic was bigger. Yeah, a lot of engines. Technological yeah. marvel back then, guys. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Fortunately, they did not have very robust QA process. I mean, that's like saying that a QA process is going to stop from an iceberg hitting your ship. That's, you know. I mean, there's got to be a way to test. It's a double insulated hole. Well, there's got to be a way to test modern ships for a certain amount of impact. Yeah, it's called physics and having double holes and having the, they had the sleaze gates where it would close the sleaze gates. But then what happened was. Yeah, but that's mitigation. That's not not prevention. There was more than one. The the cut in the side of the Titanic was longer than two of the sleaze gates. Yeah, so it over, it. It couldn't stop it. Yeah, yeah. The sleaze gates are little gates on the yeah, stack. Yeah, the gates. Yep. You can think of it as a stack, mm-hmm. like an over, like in, like a computer programming stack. And the yeah. gates are supposed to stop the stack at certain levels, but the, the cut was long enough to where it overflowed the gates. Mm-hmm. So by the time you hit the next gate, it was too much water for yeah, that gate to stop done. it. Yeah.
Stack Overflow. Everything goes back to stacks. And Stack Overflows. And Overflows because everything is C. You taught us that, Greg. Yep. Everything is C. You're just just so much smarter than everyone, Greg. Why did it take you so long to, to share your knowledge with the world on this podcast? I don't know. I don't know. I can't, I can't even begin to know. Yeah. I feel yeah. like a lot of people think that they could do a podcast, but they just never do it, which is unfortunate. I'm sure a lot more people could do podcasts and they just don't. So, you know. Yeah. It's actually not too terribly difficult. I figured this out because uh, the other day we were recording on a Mac. We were using the Mac to record our stuff. And I was I think actually it recorded better than the Linux. I don't think it did. I think it did. It didn't, no, it, didn't. it didn't lose our audio. Oh, jeez. Yeah. We have a, we have a, um, I don't think that was Linux. An unbalanced comparison because we had a one for one where Mac didn't lose our audio and we're like 24 to one where Linux did. So statistically, the Mac is more reliable. <laughs> How to lie with statistics by it is. Parsons. It's not, it's not a good, um, <laughs> it's a terrible comparison. It's a terrible comparison, but it statistically is true. The Mac it did statis- oh, statistically geez. it's true. The Mac has a hundred percent success rate of recording audio. Linux has a ninety-eight percent or whatever the math would be. So technically let's see, it's it was one out of twenty-four, so you're looking at ninety-six ish. Yeah, so it was close. It was close. Close. Yeah. Yeah, that's called the law of small sample sizes. Yeah, probably, but I'm not gonna I'm gonna ignore that because <laughs> I don't really care. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Doesn't really matter. The Mac is one for one.